Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Okay, guys, welcome back to another episode of Homebase Hope. We have a super valuable podcast for you today. Now, whether you're at the puberty stage now with your child or whether it's something that you're going to revisit later with your child in a few years' time when they've hit that stage, we're going to touch on some really interesting topics and trust me, you don't want to miss it. Today, we're talking all about puberty and relationships with Nell Francis. Nell is the founder of AspergerChild.com and the creator of the renowned program, Sensory Detective Program. She has created books and programs for kids and adults on the spectrum with a strong focus on sensory-driven behavior. Nell is a special needs educator with over 16 years experience with children on the autism spectrum from primary school all the way through to university. She is also the mum to a 29-year-old son on the autism spectrum and she's the daughter of an ASD dad. Her personal experiences combined with her special education background gives her unique insights. Welcome, Nell. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, What a pleasure. I am very excited about this. This is um, a really interesting topic that I think is going to be really, really valuable. Like I said, really valuable for parents to listen to because it's not something that we talk about a lot, is it? No, no, but uh, it's, it's something I get questioned about a lot. So, yes. Um, Excellent. So I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about your journey because we always start the podcast rewinding the clock a little bit and if you could tell us about what got you started and what drove you to do all the wonderful things and all the work that you're doing today. Well, as you said, we have a 29-year-old son on the autism spectrum and um, I guess that's where our journey began And because of my background in special ed, I mistakenly thought I didn't need a label for our child and that we would just, we knew that he presented um, with those characteristics and we would just upskill ourselves and implement some strategies and techniques. And this was back in about 1992. So Asperger's syndrome was a really new issue um, back then. Um, So uh, we mistakenly decided not to diagnose and thought that we could manage um, by upskilling ourselves, which we did, and that worked for a time. And then, um, of course, uh, the invisible processes of puberty kick in and the combination of that with um, a number of other things happening simultaneously in our son's life catapulted us into a very... um, Uh, magnified situation and we had no diagnosis in place so our child became his behaviors were increasingly odd and um, he was became very aggressive and violent almost within about a six-week period and we had no um, diagnosis in place and so because uh, his anxiety increased that anxiety skewed the picture and the professionals were talking bipolar or schizophrenia. Um, So our journey sort of began with a bang right then when he was 10 and 
and it was mismanaged by ourselves and the professionals we surrounded ourselves with. Back then, uh, Asperger's wasn't a new thing, but uh, a child who was violent with Asperger's was quite unusual. And where we lived on the Sunshine Coast, there were only two kids who were acting out in the way our son did. And so um, we were getting um, advice that really was not warranted, um, that people had no idea what to do with this kid. Um, and so, you know, we, our paediatrician was telling us, lock him in the garden shed till he comes good. Um, someone else was telling us just to punch him straight in the face when he came at us. Um, you know, stupid information. No one had any solutions. Docs suggested we sign him over to be a ward of the state and then we wouldn't have to worry anymore. All of those weren't, um, weren't any solutions for us. And in between those violent outbursts, he was a loving, gentle kid who would often suddenly start to cry and say he was sorry and say, I wish I was dead, just kill me now. I don't know how to stop this. So um, hindsight's a wonderful gift. Uh, we, we quickly had him diagnosed. Tiny Atwood diagnosed him um, 12 months after the trouble began. However, it took us about five years to... Um, uh, work through that um, and to finally get our son back, yeah? And that was because we pushed the boundaries. We weren't giving up on him. We knew that the behaviour was perhaps anxiety-related, um, but he couldn't tell us. So that was a very lonely time for our family and um, a time of lots of research and lots of, you know, I had to stop work straight away. There were times when um, our daughter had to be removed from our house because it wasn't safe for her to be there. Um, and we just stumbled along and did things that we thought might help. Um, and those things seemed extreme to other families. Um, um, but in the meantime, we wanted to respect our son that he was doing the best he could, even if that best seemed um, less. So... Uh, Long story short, that's, um, that's my background. And in, during that time, um, my dad was also recognised as having undiagnosed Asperger's. He was ageing then. And we know that in the elderly, um, Asperger's can often mimic dementia. And so every time dad had a fall or, or something and I was called to the hospital, the, um, the nurses would say, you know, we've done a... A cognitive assessment on your father we think he has um, dementia and I knew that I, my mum had passed away many years before and I knew that I was probably his support person we lived very close and I was you know going around four times a day and so um, it was very important to me that dad be recognized as an elderly person on the autism spectrum and not with dementia and so um, uh, that I was very gratified when his aged care team um, recognised that and they put strategies into place and they accepted all the strategies I was using to help support Dad. So um, I'm guessing that you can say that we have a birth-to-death knowledge of autism and how it presents across the lifetime. Um, and a lot of the... the a lot of the um, characteristics that go with autism are present... Um, soon after birth and right up until death, yeah? So um, 
yeah, that's how we got to be doing what we're doing. So during that time when I had no income, I started writing books. So first of all, I wrote the Ben and His Helmet fiction series of books about a boy um, called Ben in mainstream classroom and how he processes his world. And, um, and so the books offer problem-solving solutions and strategies and kids seem to connect to Ben's sensory issues and his anxiety and, and they often think, well, I could try that strategy or I might talk to my teacher about that or I might mention this to mum. And so um, they're still very popular today, um, which surprises me, but um, that's what I started with. And then I started writing resource books. So I have the Spurger Child Simply Explained. Then we went on to develop the Sensory Detective Workshop, which is a training program that we deliver around Australia for teachers and healthcare workers and psychologists and OTs. And on the back of that, then I decided that that wasn't changing minds quick enough. And so we developed the Sensory Detective Program, which is a program we deliver with children, um, teaching them to recognise their body signals in relation to sensory input. So, yeah, that's, um, that's what drives us to do what we do. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much, so much in that. And I don't know where to start. Um, it sounds like yeah, you didn't get a diagnosis. So if we go back to your son, you didn't get that diagnosis in the early stages. And it wasn't until crisis point, which seemed to come around that puberty stage where it was like, you know, it sounded like overwhelm and chaos and too much, you yeah. know, and that, yeah. that was at that stage where you were crying out for help. Yes, yes. Mm. And so I, yeah, I, um, I have a lot of guilt surrounding that. But um, we can't have a do-over. We just have to move forward. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and that time taught us a lot. And, yeah, I guess. And here you are. Like, here you are um, spreading this wisdom and the insights that you've learned from your own personal journey and the lived experience, which is so valuable. And parents will be listening in saying, you know, I, I resonate with this. I understand where you're coming from. So, Um, let's dive into it a bit further. Um, Before I do, actually, I did come across something on your website that you said that really caught my interest. And you said, I'm passionate about changing the perception of autism from being a behavioral condition to understanding it's a neurobiological, to understanding its neurobiological impacts on brain processes, gastrointestinal and immune system functioning. Before we get into all the puberty stuff, can uh, could you just shed some light on this? Because I find this really interesting. Well, our, we have a son who's 29 years old. And back during school, um, back then, ASD was thought to be a behavioural condition that could be um, uh, disciplined out of a child or that they needed to change their behaviour so they could fit with society. Now, that's part of the history, I guess, of ASD and, it, and it was, it's wrong, yeah? We know it's wrong. However, in homes and schools around Australia, autism is still perceived as a behavioural condition, something that can be smacked out of a child or implement consequences out of a child. But we're losing the point here that autism is a whole brain and body condition, Yeah. And it's really just a different way of thinking, perceiving, of being. It's not wrong. It's 
In fact, I think it's the new right. In a minute, in a minute, in homes around the world and workplaces around the world, we're all going to have to learn how to be more autistic, yeah? Because um, it's the new way. It's definitely better. It's better than neurotypical. That's mm. my perception. Yeah. Interesting. I definitely agree. Like I feel that autism is definitely a whole body condition and we have placed so much focus on behavior and um, strategies that focus just on behavior and not actually looking at what is underlying that behavior. Why is it actually occurring in the first place? So and My interest was piqued when I found out that one in two um, people with autism also have pyrrole syndrome, um, which is uh, an an inability to absorb particular nutrients. And one in five people um, with autism have their MTHFR gene mutation, which is the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase gene mutation, which means that they can't metabolise folate. Now, all of those um, nutrients that they can't absorb are all the feel-good nutrients, the ones that without you're really cranky or you're anxious or you're whatever. And so... Um, and there are a certain set of, um, there's also, and I know it's not part of the autism spectrum per se, but these conditions are wrapped up um, and seem to go together. So uh, inflammatory conditions such as asthma, eczema and psoriasis, um, gut issues. So most individuals have um, uh, some sort of gut issue and so knowing that a probiotic, a daily probiotic, can really um, help them be more regulated, yeah? And anecdotally, um, uh, people tell me that a probiotic can help with their anxiety levels. So, you know, there's a lot of research. Research is still banging around the same old, same old things. What causes it and could there be a cure? Nobody's interested in that anymore. We want to know how to have autistic individuals operate at their best level, right? Um, uh, we're not interested in that research. That's done and dusted. It's time to move on, right? <laughs> you know? I agree. I believe in lifestyle optimization strategies. What can we do for an individual? And we really need to take it back to the individual person because every right. person, every individual on the autism spectrum is very different. They have different needs and we need to look at it like you said, like from a biological level, a social level, an emotional level, a physical level, all these different things we need to look at and integrate and work out what is the best fit for the, for the person and for the family as well. Mm. Definitely. I definitely agree. So, um, you know, like unless we're talking about this, um, uh, unless we're bringing it to the attention of parents and, and um health professionals they might they might only know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to autism education they might only know the characteristics that and that tells you nothing really does it no absolutely again because we're just looking at behavior and if we look at the diagnostic criteria of how much the diagnosis of autism has changed over the last you know 60 70 years like you said back in the day we were looking at it very differently and mums were blamed for his exactly. autism exactly. you know and yeah. we saw it as a behavioral thing um and now we see it very differently how are we going to see it in 20 years 20 years from now 20 years from now yeah. years from now 
Yes, you had a bit of a delay there and I heard you repeating yourself, but that's just the technology. And look, that leads me to the next point. I'm, um, we're still using a lot of ancient tools surrounding examining autistic behaviour. And, and one of those tools that I particularly dislike, which seems to have come back into fashion now, is a functional behaviour um, analysis or assessment. So we're talking about viewing behaviours, you know, the ABC method, the antecedent, what happens before, the behaviour, what is the behaviour, and then the consequence of the behaviour. Now, that, that method was first developed in 1955. So when children were meant to be seen and not heard and blah, 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 blah. Right? Unless we change our lens, unless we adopt the view and change it slightly, we're going to get it wrong. If we're using that tool to examine autistic behaviours, we're going to get it wrong. And also, um, assuming that we know the consequence of that behaviour is also putting a bit of a personal spin on it. Assuming that we think um, the behaviour was, um, you know, if I do this, I'll get that, right? That's putting our personal spin on it. My belief is that we have to change our lens when we're viewing autistic behaviour. If we're trying to decode behaviour, there are three truths that we have to apply first before we use any tools. That is, autistic people are rule-oriented. So they are always following the rules. Regardless of what you see in front of you, they are following the rules or their interpretation of the rule. Number two, they like to please. So they're wanting to please you by doing their best, yeah? And so if we ask them a direct question, they're not going to tell you what they think. They're going to tell you the answer they think you want to hear because they want to please you. And thirdly, at every moment of every day, they're doing the best they can. So if that best looks like a meltdown, something is going on because they're rule-oriented, they're wanting to please you, and that is the best they can give you. So unless we change our view, and I'm, I bang on about this all day in my training workshops because um, we have to understand that truth. And if you apply that, the answers you get from using a tool like a functional behaviour assessment, the answers you get are extremely different, yeah? So if I um, went into a classroom and I bent down and spoke to a student and he threw himself back off a chair and then that fell into another desk and the class was in uproar, rather than thinking that that child is the class clown or um, wanting to upset the class, I would simply help him pick up his chair and say, is my perfume bothering you? And once you start asking sensory questions, you'll be amazed at the answers you get. So... Um, uh, I'm, I just have this bee in my bonnet about changing the view of how you view the behaviours of autistic people. Mm, I love it. I love it. And maybe we need to get you back on um, another day for a whole podcast on it. <laughs> Sorry, I get a bit sidetracked. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox and you can keep asking me questions. <laughs> All right, let's, let's make a transition into puberty because that's what we're here to talk about today, um, puberty and relationships. So this is something we haven't covered on the show yet and I want to learn more because it's not something I work with the younger kids. Um, 
And when you think about it, you know, puberty is one of those things that it's tough for everyone and anyone who's going through it. And it's particularly, it must be particularly difficult for the kids on the spectrum because, I mean, there's so many more challenges thrown into it. It's a massive life transition. Um, can we dive into this? Where, sure. where do we start? Let's start at the basics. And I mean, when does puberty start? And do kids on the autism spectrum um, develop and mature at the same age as their peers? What's well, it look like? In my experience, around age 10 is when those invisible processes of puberty begin. So that is when they uh, are getting their first hit of hormones. In males, it's testosterone. In females, it's estrogen, yeah? However, the youngest client I've seen, um, female client, was eight and a half. And so from age eight onwards, we have to be aware. Now, this is long before any body hair starts to sprout or any body changes take place. As soon as those hormones make their presence known in the body, um, we see behaviours in um, individuals on the autism spectrum. And those behaviours, um, what we see are behavioural changes. So with the injection of hormones comes a marked increase in sensory issues. So that's probably the first thing you will notice. They don't want to shower. They don't want to wash their hair. They're suddenly throwing their dinner plate at the wall, even if it's their favourite um, meal, because everything changes. So this marked increase in um, sensory issues. And a big one that we forget is that um, vestibular system. So we see a, a loss of balance. So the, the washing of the hair could be simply that they can no longer move their body with their eyes closed without feeling that they're going to fall over. So we think, oh, you know, you're not looking after your personal hygiene habits. But if we start looking at it from a sensory point of view, we can usually solve the issue. Once you start asking those questions, you'll get answers that will shock you. Um, so we see the sensory issues markedly increase. We see a marked increase in anxiety, and that's in all children. So if your eight-year-old is already highly anxious, when that process starts, you're going to see a big increase in behaviours, and what it may present at is inability to attend school. I don't talk about school refusal. I hate that word because our kids are rule-oriented, doing their best and wanting to please, yeah? So um, they want to go to school like every other kid. So sometimes we just see the behaviours and we assume that they're just acting out or they're, and when you ask them why, they don't know why, right? They're just, because anxiety in kids looks totally different from anxiety in adults. Yeah, a kid who's anxious isn't going to be in the fetal position in the corner. They're just going to be doing their everyday thing, but they might be scratching themselves to the point of sores on their skin or they might be um, developing a facial tick or they may be um, showing, you know, inability to attend school or um, frequent meltdowns, more frequent meltdowns. And that's how anxiety manifests in kids, yeah? They don't know really what anxiety is. They just know their body signals in relation to that. And lastly, with um, puberty comes um, a loss of impulse control. So our kids begin blurting out things or doing things and thinking, oh, my God, why do I do that? Why do they say that? And this happens usually at a time when their same age peers are learning to control their impulses. So they're standing out um, in the environments they're in. 
So if we remember those three things is what you'll see, first of all, before any body changes have taken place. Um, and generally, there's no hard and fast rule about when autistic individuals develop and mature. And it can be uneven. So, And I think that's linked in really with um, how developmentally delayed autism um, is affecting that child. So sometimes um, you'll see an individual that's a little bit behind their peers and so this process might begin at 11 or 12, yeah? So, but when it, um, when it appears, you will notice the behaviours. If you look for those behaviours, um, and so what I call the honeymoon period for sensory issues is usually between the age of 7 and 10 because you think, oh, yeah, I've got these um, sensory issues licked, you know, we've got the sensory supports in place and then we've got it all down pat and you have a little bit of a, a few years where you think you've got this autism thing in the bag, right? And then um, when puberty hits, um, everything goes out the window. So if you understand to... Um, to support the sensory issues and support the anxiety and talk about, okay, I can see that your brain's um, operating quicker um, or your body's operating quicker than your brain is for that impulse control because they'll feel a bit foolish and they might feel embarrassed, yeah? So that's about when it starts. Um, uh, we need to be having a conversation around puberty and the body changes well before that because our kids um, are feeling frightened by their by all this they don't know why they're suddenly so anxious they don't know why their sensory issues are so bad they feel a little out of control they're going to get the body signals from anxiety and that is their heart rate's going to be easily startled and they're going to have a you know the tummy issues of feeling sick or or needing to urinate more um that um you know, the puffy breathing, you know, panting breathing. So their brains are going to be really easily started um, at that age. So we need to be having conversations well before that. Problem being is that they don't want to hear it, right? We know that autistic individuals often have a heightened sense of embarrassment. And so while we need to deliver this information, often you'll get a kid say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, right? But we have to persevere. We have to, our kids aren't, um, they don't hang out in packs. They're lone wolves. So they're not picking up this information from anyone else. Yeah. Do you want to get a word in there, Trace? I tend to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I was going to ask, what kind of conversations should parents be having with their kids? What does a conversation look like? Where do they start? All right. So providing some resources, and there's only two that I like written by the same author, David Hartman, Growing Up Guide for Girls and the Growing Up Book for Boys, and they're written specifically for autistic individuals. So uh, they cover most things, yeah? So we provide some resources um, in a format uh, that they can look at. There's, there's sort of cartoon pictures and there's the information but we can't just leave it at giving them a book and hoping that they get it because we remember that um, information is ingested a little bit differently sometimes in autistic brains. So we have to be sure that we don't leave out any details and that the 
that they do in fact understand about body changes. Um, so we need to start delivering small, easily digestible chunks of information um, uh, just often. And I recommend to parents that you deliver it like a science lesson. Just stick to the facts, yeah? So, and we need to be talking about correct body parts. We need to be talking about penises and vaginas and breasts. Um, we don't have to name them silly names. They need to know the names, yeah? Um, and we need to not leave out any important details. So um, we can't just say your body's going to experience changes through puberty. We have to be quite specific and say things like, um, for boys, during puberty, your penis is likely to grow longer and thicker. Because if we leave out details, um, I had a, a client that didn't know that was to happen, and so he tried to chop his penis off, thinking that it had cancer. So we can't leave out details. We, um, and we also have to understand that depending on the um, depending on the support level of each child, you have to break it down into their language and understand that their language is all about context. So I have one little female client who's very dinosaur-oriented. And so when we were talking about body changes um, and then we came, um, came into the part about periods, she said, oh, no, is that a bit like the Jurassic period or the Mesotelic period because that's the only place she'd heard the word period so um, we have to ensure that there's that understanding we have to have not just deliver facts but have conversations yeah and so we might need to get really specific um, and um, explore it in ways that we don't have to with children who aren't on the spectrum so you keep asking me questions and I'll tell you. I just don't know how much info you want me to. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I suppose there's different learning methods as well for different kids. I know a lot of kids love videos and YouTube and different things like that. That could be another area, I suppose, of Yes, you know, okay. This is, this is, I'm glad you brought this up because back in the day when there was no task force Argos, Many autistic kids use the internet to research body changes. And so they're looking at penis pictures and they're looking at vagina pictures. And they were looking at 300 penis pictures or 500 vagina pictures in an effort to establish what is um, the average. Yeah? Because of Task Force Argos, we can't do that anymore. And so um, I'm often at the police station supporting autistic individuals and their families because the, the computer is still their go-to for research. The trouble is how do you tell a 12-year-old penis from a 22-year-old penis, right? Um, and this is um, a big area. We know that the computer is the go-to for information. Practice. They research everything. And so they're doing research, but they're actually um, getting into trouble. Police don't understand the way autistic brains work. And so they're doing their job to, to um, rule out child pornography. I understand that. But we're getting a lot of kids who are actually going to court because of it and different things. 
And so we really have to have some conversations in our family um, about how is our child going to uh, do this research in a safe online way. So mm. I don't, and that's a whole nother can of worms. We could, we could have a whole day talking. <laughs> yeah? Interesting. I suppose my more thought was if there's any educational videos, you know, something that parents could play to sit them down to watch. So because it can be really awkward, you know, I haven't been through that as a parent myself, but I can imagine it can be really awkward and whether it's for the parent who, you know, just doesn't feel comfortable talking about it with their child or whether they know their child isn't going to feel comfortable, you know, coming from their mum or their dad. And is there a specific parent, you know, should the mums be talking to the girls or... No, I don't think so. I think if there's a two-parent family, each of you needs to have a conversation or jointly because they need to know this isn't a taboo area that you only talk to dad or you only talk to mum because going forward there's going to be a lot of issues in relationships and sexual relationships and we really need to get it right. And it all depends, again, on the support needs of your child, right? So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um uh, I, I'm not aware of any resources online um, and you'd have to be very careful because we don't know ourselves um, unless you've got, yeah, I wouldn't know if I was what I was looking at online either. But I'm not aware. I haven't ever gone down that way. I'm more of a talk face-to-face person, yeah. Um, oh, there was something I was going to say. Oh, be aware that... You might find some strange behaviours and you might come across things that um, you at first might think are icky. Um, but when we look at them from an autistic point of view, so I, um, I've known kids who live on a farm, they're quite isolated and they're with a single parent, right? Um, uh, the only way they can gain access to any information about the opposite sex is to ask a parent to have a look at um, and so that can be perceived by a parent as oh that's just a no-go area but if we look at our kids are just curious and they just need to know the science behind it what does a vagina look like what do breasts look like you know that sort of thing so I've had a few parents who are extremely freaked out by um, uh, things that their kids have asked them or of them but if we put it in context um, we you know we can sort of get past that and understand it's the information they're wanting. So um, I've, I've had a number of years' experience with kids um, going through puberty and exploring, um, which leads me on to sexuality, etc. So we have to understand that this is a time of great change and they're after information, yeah? So... Keep going. All right. Yeah. No, I was going to say um, back to the awkwardness, you know, if parents are, you know, are really uncomfortable with this and they are seeing a therapist, you know, maybe it's something that they can discuss with their therapist and their therapist. I work with families all the time surrounding this and each family has a different need, right, because some families are just too embarrassed to address it with their children. Uh, other families just want guidance, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to link in with people. I'm not a therapist. I'm an education consultant. But what I do is connect with families. And I guess um, uh, 
no one was there to guide me and I want to help others uh, through that period. So, yes, but we also need to be talking to experienced autistic professionals or profession, professionals experienced with autism because um, those that aren't can misconceive some behaviours um, and some language and get it wrong. So I urge parents to trust your gut in this. Trust your child firstly, but trust your gut. If whoever's in front of you, if it feels wrong, if they're giving you information that um, doesn't sit well with you, it's probably because it's not right for you. So seek out those who are here to help your family move you forward, um, not judge your family and not um, panic about the things you tell them, yeah? So I'll move on from that because that's getting a bit... Um, so basically we just need to deliver information in easy-to-digest chunks, understanding that that level of embarrassment rises and they don't want to hear it. I often found a great place to deliver this information with driving along the highway at 100 kilometres an hour um, where we're both strapped in and no one could get out. Um, but also understand that uh, kids take things in differently. I'm, I'm a great lover of social stories. It allows a child to read and reread and reread at their own speed. And we know um, that it, um, an autistic brain needs to read a social story six to eight times before that information becomes embedded. And so social stories don't have to be on paper. Social stories can be a text message or an email. Um, so just hit your child at the level they're at. We still use social stories. Um, with our son if we're wanting to impart important information because that allows him to read and reread and reread. And, um, and I guess he does it back with us um, if he wants us to know something new about him as well. So um, we just have to go slowly, talk about it often um, and hit them at their level. And sometimes parents can be quite embarrassed about this. But if, if we don't step up for our kids, who's going to tell them and what are they going to be told? Mm. And mm. you mentioned before sexuality. Now, obviously, kids, as they sort of start to hit those teen years, they're going to feel these sexual urges. And, you know, masturbation is something that is probably going to come up. Yep. What are your thoughts around approaching this with the kids? What, what sort well, of conversation? Masturbation, well, masturbation is part of life. If it feels good, they're going to do it. And in my mind, autistic individuals are driven by their senses. So, of course, they're going to be better masturbators than the general population. <laughs> no, that's, only, that's just um, an aside. But I have met kids who were terribly good at masturbating and... Um, and we just have to teach them time and place, yeah? And if it becomes something that's, you know, um, interfering with their daily functioning ability, we have to examine why they need that feel good, what's, what's missing in the rest of their life, yeah, to make them want to do that constantly. So I believe in... Um, I don't believe masturbation is a taboo subject at all, especially and even with girls, yeah, if it feels good, they're going to do it. And um, often we, um, but we teach time and place. And what Can you delve into that a little bit? Okay. What would you, what would you say? What would a conversation look like? 
we have to be quite specific. So, um, uh, and with boys, we tell them that they might be experiencing spontaneous erections um, because, and we need to tell them what that might look like and feel like. And for autistic children, I find that often, you know, if they do their work well at school, they'll have an erection. Or um, if they uh, feel a texture that they really like, they'll have an erection. A lot of the times in that pubescent stage, it's not related to sexual thoughts. It's just related to um, feeling good, yeah? So um, for, for boys, I think um, we, we talk about that you will have an erection. And if it's um, an appropriate time and place would be your bedroom with the door closed. And we make sure um, in, um, that they have a, a supply of um, tissues and cleanup products, yeah. And we talk about, um, and some children um, may want lubricant. So we have to have all these open discussions. Otherwise, they're going through a bottle of shampoo in two days in the shower or whatever. So, um, and that's not good for the skin of penises, yeah? Um, so we have to get really practical and think about this from a scientific point of view. So, um, so we provide them the tools and the knowledge and uh, it's not taboo, but we want them in their bedroom with the door closed. We don't say our bedroom because otherwise it might end up in grandma's bedroom on Christmas Day, masturbating. We can never leave out details when we're talking to autistic individuals. So with boys, um, they have a particularly hard time because spontaneous erections happen and then eventually spontaneous ejaculation happens. And unless we've had those conversations, I've worked with um, a young fellow who didn't know what happened the first time that happened. He didn't know what it was um, and he thought he'd wet himself, yeah? We can't let our kids experience this because this can be traumatising to them. We have to ensure that um, because we know boys have a worse time of it um, than girls because erections are visible. So we have to ensure that they've always got a book or a hat in their hand or you can buy reinforced boxer shorts online that help hide um, erections. And we have to understand that uh, and we can just say to them, when you're feeling good or when you, um, if we have a sensory profile done, uh, we'll know what their greatest sensory issue is. So if it's tactile when they touch something or if it's auditory when they hear a certain song or something, they might um, have a spontaneous erection. So it's about having those conversations. Girls are somewhat different. Um, often little girls will start masturbating from a young age, three or five. Um, and again, we can still teach them time and place, yeah? But if that behaviour is becoming constant, we need to investigate what's going wrong in their life or what's going on if they're needing to do that constantly. Now, um, I found that um, the Family Planning Association in Queensland was a great resource to link into um, because they know about sexuality. It's not, um, it's not a taboo topic and... And the first thing they said to me the day I linked in, and this was about 10 years ago, was if it feels good, they're going to do it. Um, so, and that was before I'd even said the person was on the autism spectrum. So, um, so 
having those conversations, providing um, some tools, the, the, the appropriate tools, yeah, so they're not hurting themselves, um, uh, and keeping that conversation open, that line of communication open is so important mm. because we, we don't know what the next step for them will be, right? Um, uh, so we don't want them to mistakenly um, approach someone uh, to take that a step further. And this is all case-specific and person-specific. So it all uh, depends on the um, support needs of the person and where they're at on, you know, on the spectrum. So, um, but I always think plan for the, I hope for the best and plan for the worst is my motto. Yeah, if we've got all bases covered, nothing can go wrong because our, our kids just need gentle guidance and steering through this time because it's really confusing for them as well. And in a lot of ways, we sometimes give conflicting advice. So we have to be really, really careful. Um, girls, on the other hand, um, by the time they're into their teens, they can like sex in ways or that sexual feeling or that orgasm in ways that neurotypical girls don't have. So um, during their teens, um, girls on the autism spectrum um, will often engage in sex when they're not in um, a long-term relationship because unlike their neurotypical peers, they enjoy the sex, they enjoy the orgasm and the, um, the sensory feeling of it. And so um, they may not be connected, they may just um, do it because it feels good, right, which can interfere with how others perceive them. I'm not, I don't think, like I'm not judging or saying that it's wrong um, or, or anything like that, but we have to be there to guide them um, appropriately, yeah? So um, I'm probably talking in extremes and I don't want to frighten parents, I don't, uh, but we just need to be having those conversations and we need to understand that it's everybody's, everybody's right to be, to establish their sexuality and to be a sexual being, regardless of their um, support needs. So we're talking low, um, high support needs or low support needs. Everybody deserves to engage in um, sexual intimacy. Mm, wow. So fascinating. <laughs> You've touched on so many useful things there. That was amazing. Um, and I think, too, I was just thinking then, I know, like, obviously we know what, uh, masturbation looks like in a boy for a girl is it just any touch down there what what exactly um, how do you define it yes and a lot of girls engage in posturing so rubbing themselves on furniture boys can do this too at early ages um, and often in young girls say three to five to seven uh, they it just feels good so they'll posture themselves or rub themselves but um very rarely bring themselves to orgasm at that age. Um, so uh, I believe if we encourage girls to explore masturbation, be a bit more open with them, but they'll get to know their bodies more. And going forward, they'll be able to um, know what they like and um, we can perhaps empower them in ways that we, well, I'm 56, um, 
I didn't get any sex education or anything. So, um, and I grew up in a Catholic family, so say no more. You can, um, we don't want that going forward. It's the 21st century, yeah? Everybody's empowered to be in control of their own body and, um, yeah, to love themselves. Mm. And so if kids are doing it as young as three to five, when do our conversations start? Is it later, you know, in adolescence that we actually well, have those conversations around that? I think so. Quite young. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, sometimes teachers will notice it in a classroom and, mm-hmm. um, and um, I recently had someone, a teacher, ask me this and, and she said, so we've asked her, why do you do that? And she said, because it feels so good. Well, if you ask a silly question, you're going to get a silly answer. But the problem is if, if that's happening all day in a classroom, we have to find out why she needs that feel good all the time, um, you know, like is there something going on and so on and so forth. So it needs investigation. So it's just like any other um, behaviour in early childhood, right, um, whether it be a stimming or a flapping. or a, um, So we talk about appropriate place, although it, it all becomes a bit blurry and grey area here. It's case-by-case case specific. You have to work out this girl was in year one, so other little children may not have noticed or or know what she's doing. It's just the adults in the room did, yeah? So, and I I only got told the information, I didn't witness it, so I can't problem solve because I didn't have all the details. So it's just about breaking it down and um, seeing who's, you know, sometimes if we um, bring a behaviour to attention, we see that behaviour more. Sometimes if we don't, uh, you know, the behaviour will go away on its own. So it's about using your best judgment and it's about knowing the whole child and that sort of thing. But um, for older girls, they'll often be more private when they start masturbating. Again, um, I think we can have some conversations around that. We don't, again, girls won't want to hear it, but um, I do think that we can sort of, it shouldn't be something that's, we shouldn't put our own personal feelings on it, you know. Um, so is that mm, Yeah, well, that's it because I think so often it is taboo. It's something we don't talk about, um, but it is something that we really need to be having and starting that conversation around because yeah. it happens, you know, it is life. So it is. Important. And, you know, lots of parents often will email me, um, you know, and just have a one-line uh, question and you can tell that they they just need to reach out and so um, but I always look to everything for me is sensory based I would look at sensory issues long before I look at anything else so I once had um, a parent say to me um, that she thought her son needed to know that masturbation could end in orgasm because he seemed to stop short and she thought she just thought it was, yeah, and how do I have that conversation and blah, blah, blah. So in talking to her and breaking it down, it turned out that because um, he seemed to have an erection a lot of the time. And I just said, what type of undies does he wear? Does he wear boxes or jocks? And she said, boxes. I said, are they satin boxes? And she said, yes. And I said, 
and satin rubbing on a on a penis is quite nice and so maybe that's why he's got an erection she said oh my goodness she just changed to cotton and the problem solved yeah wow we have to look at if we always look to the senses um first and break it down and really when you start to do that you're just using your imagination like but um just look at all the sensory issues so uh they go with it and then we can just go from there because yeah so firing those questions at me please awesome let's before we before we head to the five rapid fire questions i did briefly just want to touch on relationships because this ties into it all um as they get older they'll probably get a crush on someone at school or they might feel attracted to someone what are some of the common challenges that we see in kids on the autism spectrum who you know when we're talking about feelings and relationships well often Often, in my experience, kids on the spectrum are often don't have a great deal of friends. They might have one or two friends in their circle, and that's usually enough. Um, sometimes, in in my own experience from my family, uh, our son used to have one person at a time, and um, he would almost be obsessed by that person and that's a bad word to use but he was just so excited to have a friend he wanted to know everything about that friend and blah 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 yeah um and and most typically those friends were girls for him um i've known other individuals who that behavior can cross over into almost stalking because um they want to know everything about and and they're so wrapped up and um, and that person becomes their everything, yeah? And so we have to really look out for that and I believe um, social skills groups and real-life social skills, that is, with a group of their peers um, with or without autism, um, needs to be happening uh, from across those high school years or even in primary school, because we need to understand that through no fault of their own, just because they're hardwired that way, behaviours can be misconstrued and can annoy people um, because uh, our kids are focused. They're so focused on their friends or so focused. And, you know, so we have to be doing all this talking. And so we try and broaden their friendship circle. We try and look at... um, are you giving too much of yourself? We have to look at friendship in an even way. This is long before relationships happen. They have to understand most autistic people are so good at being friends. They know how to be a good friend, but they don't know how to expect that person to be a friend to them. They take little or nothing in return. They give, give, give. That's my experience of my own family and in all the clients I've had. They're great. They're textbook learners about what makes a good friend, yeah, and they'll support that friend and they'll do and they'll give. And if we don't help them realise, and our own son, I didn't realise that he didn't understand that until he was about 21. So he was always a very good friend to whoever his current friend was and he would give and give and give and he would support them in, you know, um, uh, but he didn't know that he could expect that in return. In fact, he didn't know that he should expect that in return. So 
And that's because we've never had that conversation. So um, we have to be having those conversations and we have to help them feel their self-worth by expecting to get back as much as they give. Mm, and so we have to be point, pointing that out from an early age because um, uh, then once they have that, um, that social ability, yeah, uh, and I guess that's the wrong term to use. Our, our um, individuals are always, I believe, so giving and intently focused. So, but they have to have that level of understanding, I believe, before entering relationships because otherwise they'll just continue giving, giving, giving and expecting nothing in return, yeah? Mm. Lead, <clears throat> excuse me, can lead to, you know, broken hearts and, yeah, and it does nothing for their self-esteem. So... Um, Start those conversations early in primary school when your friends, when your kids are friends with others, yeah? Because it's just, yeah. I can imagine another social difficulty that they might have is reading social cues and understanding body language and gestures from, you know, the person that they're attracted to. They might misinterpret something. It could lead to confusion, embarrassment, um, you know, all those sorts of things as well. And I, I reckon... I think we should have another um, sensory profile done um, in, uh, you know, before they leave high school or in their early 20s. Unless you know your sensory profile, if you want to you start engaging in a sexual relationship and you're really smell-averse, there's a lot of smells that go along with um, having sexual intercourse. Or if you can't stand skin on skin, um, then you're going to have to rethink things you know Uh, so we really need to be revisiting that sensory profile across the lifetime because your sensory issues and needs do change and so you have to have a good handle of who you are before you engage um you know if you if you have misophonia um and you don't like the sounds of sex you know there's going to be some issues there so um we need to be constantly talking to our young adults and um, and having these open conversations. And, yes, body language and, and, and misreading those cues all, are all part of it. Um, we've, we've continued to um, encourage our son to just talk about that now. He's 29 years old. And so uh, he, you'll be having a conversation with him or he'll be having a conversation with his friends and he'll say, I didn't get that tone. What does that mean? Or um, so he asks for clarification, and he's comfortable enough to do that. He um, he, all his friends are aware of his autism, and that's the way he likes it. Um, and he, you know, he'll be he'll be out with them. He'll be having a few drinks, and he'll suddenly say, "Oh, I can't do the windiness. You know, we need to go inside. I can't stand the wind." And that's okay, rather than letting him letting it irritate him and blowing up, you know, and perhaps losing friends. But that's been a work in progress too um, through examining that with him and encouraging him to be and speak his truth, yeah? Mm. So So many interesting points you have raised throughout the whole entire (laughs) podcast. It has been... I'm happy to do a follow-up if you need to (laughs) because it's a big area that we really do need to be engaging. Mm. Mm. And if children have... uh, 
don't have a really good understanding of social ability, I have a little, um, uh, oh, I suppose I could talk to you for another hour about it, but I have a little um, scenario that I like to deliver to parents to help them practice their social skills and to help them flex those social muscles um, before they enter into relationships because um, uh, they just need to understand themselves and they also need to understand how the social world works a little bit. And I'm just, you know, we can't generalise here. It's all about um, support levels, um, you know, whether they have low support levels or high support levels. Mm. But um, we can help everybody engage in relationships and sexual relationships. Um, it's their right to, yeah? So, and if that person has high support needs, and wouldn't ever be able to form a relationship on their own. There are um, places we can link into with our NDIS funding that do provide that service. So um, these are all important things and they might sound a bit icky and confronting, but you know what? Not speaking about them leads to more ickiness and more um, so... We, we need to be having these conversations um, uh, and having open conversations and finding solutions, yeah? Mm. It's, yeah. Awesome. So, now, I've probably scared everybody to death by now. <laughs> no, everyone, I think, will be glued to their chair or whatever they're doing, just so intent, not wanting to pause it to go pick their kids up from school or whatever the next thing they have to do is. Um, right. Hit me with the five rapid yeah, fire. Yeah, let's do it. Five rapid fire questions. Number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? Look at behaviour from a sensory point of view. Back chain from a sensory issue. That's my piece of advice, yeah? Excellent. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? It's usually surrounding toileting issues, right? Um, and so you, uh, I'll get some little whisper, but... Toileting issues, again, is usually sensory related. And so um, we can, sometimes toileting issues can affect 16-year-old and 18-year-old and so on. So toileting issues, I'm happy to talk about poo. I'm happy to talk about wee. So hit me with your questions. <laughs> awesome. It sounds like nothing is taboo with you, so we know where to come. <laughs> Number three, what book would you recommend all parents read? Well, of course, I'm going to say my Ben and his helmet books, but I wrote them to help um, change minds and to help give an insight, but not only to connect with kids um, on, the, on the spectrum, but to help parents understand that, okay, my kid does that too, that's okay, yeah? Or to help grandparents understand, oh, I, I get it a little bit now. So, yeah, my books, my Ben books. Excellent. Number four, what is your top unfinished bucket list item? Well, my sensory detective program that I uh, do with children is meant to be, was always intended to be a train-the-trainer program. At the moment, I'm the only one in the world delivering it and I developed it and I um, refined it over the last eight years. And if I had a spare minute, I <laughs> would take it to... Alert from Demira's oh, server. Sorry, low battery. I've got a low battery here. <laughs> um, Alert from so, um, yeah, I would like to 
have the time to roll that out so that others can uh, experience the um, the value of it. And it's a great program and it's really awesome with kids. Once we start them talking about their sensory issues, we can't shut them up. And then um, we can get into their minds a little bit and, yeah, it's it's really a worthwhile program. Fantastic. Number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? I hate to bang on about it, but it is change your lens. Know that your child's rule-oriented, that they like to please, and at every moment of every day, they're doing the best they can. If that best looks horrible, find out why, yeah? I love it. Absolutely love it. So how can people connect with you? How can they find out more about your amazing program? Where do they go? Um, they can go to my website, aspergerchild.com, or if they type in Nell Francis with an E at the end of C-E-S, yeah, um, it should take you straight to my website. And um, uh, it's a bit overloaded, my website at the moment, because I keep adding stuff in. But uh, we'll get to making a new one in soon yeah <laughs> all to come stay tuned awesome yeah. thank you so much now i have personally gotten a lot out of this um interview i've learned a lot so i'm sure everyone who is tuning in as well has gotten so much out of it thank you for having me and i hope i haven't frightened the audience <laughs> <laughs> thank you i'm sure they'll come running to your website and you'll get a whole lot of emails in your inbox <laughs> okay excellent thanks now Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you, but more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all, so if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to everyone and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing and this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life-changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about and enjoy it.
it's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.